0: Hello and welcome to SpecsCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside Drew. Howdy. And TJ. Hello. Joining us this week are two Specs members, Matt Glazer. Hello. And Dan Mitchell. Hi. SpecsCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as Specs, a student faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about Specs and Specscast at our website, specs.rit.edu. Heads up, the Specscast blog is back. You can check out show notes to every new episode and links to more blog posts at blog.spexcast.com. Today, we'll be talking about Specs's own upcoming high altitude balloon. Please let us know what other topics you would like us to discuss in the future by sending us a tweet at specscast or an email at specscast at gmail.com. Okay, so first of all, um, Matt, TJ, Drew, and Dan, you all have worked on the Spex's high altitude balloons in the past,
1: right? Correct. We should probably say that I am and have been the HAB team lead for the past three-ish semesters. Um, so when we say altitude balloon, um, this is a very large latex balloon that carries a payload up to, depending on the size of the balloon and how much helium, we put in around 100,000 feet up in the atmosphere. Uh, we're going to call it a HAB probably quite frequently because that's just the, the acronym, high-altitude balloon, H-A-B, HAB. But let's uh, let's talk about it.
0: Yeah, well, how big is this, first of all? This is like a couple pounds, right?
1: So I think the limit's six pounds is what we were limited to, all usually. Right, all right, <laughs> so it's slightly complicated. Um, the balloon itself is just a a really, really massive latex balloon. So on the ground when we fill it, it's a little over a meter in diameter. The payload that we carry, um, the more helium you put in, and the larger balloon that you have, the heavier payloads you can take up. We tend to use a 1200 gram balloon, so that's the mass of the latex, and we send up payloads that tend to be below six pounds. That's because the FAA has a regulation, or they have different levels of regulation, and if your payload is below six pounds, a lot of that regulation doesn't apply. So in order to avoid a lot of paperwork uh, and a lot of extra features that need to be on the balloon for safety, we stay, We try and stay below six pounds.
0: Perfect. Um, and this is our, Specs' is fourth high-altitude balloon launch. Let's talk about the, the mission, the point of launching this high-altitude balloon, and sort of the mission profile. Like, what, what are the different parameters? Um, so this one is under six pounds. Uh, you said a hundred thousand feet in the air,
1: um, correct? As the target altitude, right? Correct. That's when the volume of the or the pressure differential between the helium and the atmosphere outside of the balloon overcome the structural integrity of the balloon, and it bursts. So you
0: can choose the altitude based on by by choosing the balloon material and properties itself.
1: Correct, and the volume of uh or the really the mass of helium that you put into the balloon as well so you're going to be launching from rit correct so there is a parking lot on the north side of campus that has a clear skyline because this won't go straight up immediately especially because rochester is very windy so we need an area that's large enough that when the wind starts blowing it it has time to clear all of the surrounding obstruction so it needs to go over the trees over the buildings over the people um So this first balloon launch, the first HAB that RIT Specs ever sent up, was launched in the fall, in October of 2015. Uh, So this balloon wasn't filled enough, because we didn't have a, a mechanism to fill it really well. We just kind of held the neck of the balloon and stuck a hose with helium in it, and then we filled it until we couldn't really hold it anymore, which again, it was raining and wet, so it became a bit of a challenge, and we just tied off the neck of the balloon which was attached to our payload, which was just a big styrofoam cooler, and then we sent that up. The problem was that because it was so hard to fill, we didn't have enough helium inside it on the first attempt, and it kind of just floated above the ground, and the wind pushed it to the east. Uh, so they had to run after it, grab it, bring it back to where we were filling, where the helium tank was, and then put more helium in until it got to the point where it could actually lift itself up into the atmosphere. So all this goes into the planning phase before
0: you launch. When do you decide what altitude and where you're launching from and when you're launching? When do you decide all this? Do you just have like a regular mission profile?
1: So it depends on what you're trying to do. For us so far, all of our launches have kind of been educational. We haven't had too many scientific payloads. There wasn't anything novel about them. So it's just getting our feet wet. And that means that we had some balloons that were from a previous project at RIT. We used those balloons that were available. They were all 1,200-gram balloons, so they all would fill to the same amount and go up and burst at the same point. So they all targeted 100,000 feet. And really, we were getting familiar with the sensors we were using and developing a new uh, control board, a flight board, that housed all of these sensors. And when we are planning a mission... In those early stages, those early days of launches, we were just saying, all right, we have this balloon, this resource, and we know we need to buy this much helium to fill that up, and we're going to test these sensors, and we need to be able to recover it. So go do that. In, for future missions where we have a more scientific payload, what we can do is say, all right, well, we want to image Rochester. We want to take pictures of Rochester as it's ascending so we may slow the rate of ascension with less helium and or making the balloon the payload heavier or we could if we're if we're trying to do something else uh, say try and get into the jet stream triangle as far east as we can then we will again try and slow that rate of ascent so that we spend more time at the altitude that the jet stream is at so the winds push us much farther much faster you plan to recover these as well right correct so the balloon goes up and bursts, and then if this, if that were it, the box would just fall out of the sky and destroy itself on the ground. Because it is just a styrofoam which, box. Which has it's happened. Debatable. Not for us. Um, uh, the, the, what Phil's referencing is there have been a couple missions where it, it comes down with more velocity than you'd want, and the box sustains some light external damage where bits of foam are broken off, but it's really, it's nothing that ruins the structure we, we 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 refly all of these boxes all the payloads um, but when the balloon pops it does enter free fall
0: for a little while and then it uses a parachute um, when it gets below a certain altitude and then it floats down to the earth
1: correct and it's not so much a certain altitude there there is obviously some altitude at which it, which the parachute deploys but the parachute is held taut by the balloon so it's in between the balloon and the payload box So once the balloon bursts, that force keeping it taut is gone, and as it free falls, wind rushes into the parachute, and it fills and slows the descent. And we have an APRS module, which is just a a circuit that receives GPS data and then pings that out to radio repeaters, these are towers across the state or across the country, that receive a signal and then uh, repeat that signal so it'll It'll boost the distance that you can send a radio signal. So that then gets stored to a website, aprs.fi, which allows you to go and see the position that the balloon is at. So we, we send up the balloon, uh, and we're tracking it with the aprs module. And then we go and find where it lands. And it's accurate within, you know, several meters, uh, depending on, as long as there's no other cover blocking the radio, the APRS module that's on the box from connecting with a repeater. Cool. And there have been some
0: wild goose chases trying to find, um, and the fun story is actually recovering HABs, but we can talk about that a little bit later. Let's talk more about HAB 4. This is a fourth launch. Um, For HAB 4, let's talk about the actual payloads. Um, So we have scientific payloads aboard this time. It's not just tech demo, like getting... Launching HABs, uh, learning how to launch a HAB anymore. It's We're actually right. doing some science this time.
1: So, in the past, again, we've just been getting our feet wet. We've launched pretty much just an array of sensors. There was one mission that was to launch a CubeSat frame, though we had a, a video recording the deployment of this CubeSat. And when I say deployment, I don't mean it launched off of the high altitude balloon, but rather it was a senior design project where the sides spread out and that. The idea being that when you deploy those sides, when they open up, you'd have more surface area with solar panels facing the sun at one time, extending the capability of a CubeSat in orbit. So this was a tech demonstration. Um, what we're doing this year on HAB4 is much more intense. So there are three payloads, th- three scientific payloads going up on HAB4. They are uh, detection vegetation mapping, and that CubeSat frame that we launched before, we had a problem with the first launch, so this is a second attempt. So we have those three payloads, the two computer vision, and then this one tech demonstration redux.
0: What are some other telemetry that you're gathering as well?
1: Well, we always have uh, an array of instruments, array of sensors on the board that flies, and those include temperature, pressure, um, we have a nine degree of freedom IMU so we're collecting information about the acceleration and the movement of the box as it ascends um, but primarily the the point is those payloads cool
0: um so I actually designed one of the the payloads it's I call it hab CV um, as uh, it's part of multi-mission t- set of experiments where we want to apply computer vision techniques to imaging data that we can collect from a high-altitude balloon. And on HAB4, (laughs) we have a payload that we've nicknamed Where You At Plants, or I I say WAP, trying to make it an acronym. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) basically, it's vegetation density mapping. So we have um, two Raspberry Pi cameras that look down at the ground. One of them is a regular camera, um, just a, a regular sensor, RGB, Um, in the visible range. And the other one um, is another camera but without an infrared filter. So what you get is light that is visible but also extends into the near-infrared wavelengths. So what we do is primarily we just want to get a big data set of ground cover, of of looking at trees from a high-altitude balloon um, in order to look from these images, get an idea of where there's a lot of trees, where there's not a lot of trees, and build up a vegetation density map that way. So on uh, where you at plants, (laughs) we're basically just doing color transformations. Um, So when you see a lot of green in a picture, you can take that red, green, blue, three-channel image, separate it out, and actually transform that color space into hue, saturation, and lightness. And that's just a different way of organizing the values to get different colors. But by switching color spaces, we can narrow it down to basically just all the greens and not have to worry about the different combinations of red, green, blue that those different hues um, might occupy. So the reason why we're using a Raspberry Pi and not just um, you know, capturing images some other way is that we want also want to push some onboard image processing. We're using OpenCV, which is an open-source computer vision package for Python, to take uh, make a logical mask um, to say, okay, these r- pixels are greenish enough. Make a, um, say, okay, those are good, and the rest of them are bad. And we're masking in-flight. It's super basic right now, um, but the point is basically just to, establish a baseline before we do anything more advanced and we also want to get enough data so where we can
1: make more advanced algorithms on the ground so phil why did you because you are the um you are the champion for this payload what made you want to do this computer vision project
0: yeah so i've been looking for a cool project to do especially with raspberry Pis. (laughs) uh In the past and another specs member uh, Jeff Maggio um, is an imaging science major and um, he was the one that came to me about this idea and um, me and TJ kind of talked it over how this would work as a high altitude balloon payload. Um, Vegetation density mapping is not new by any means Um, but it's just a super interesting problem to tackle. Talking about the science though like in history, how is this actually used um, in real life on real satellites and how does the science work? In the 70s, NASA and NOAA launched uh, satellites that do that normalized difference vegetation index. And this is based on the fact that plants look green in the visible spectrum because chlorophyll reflects green light. So there's a specific wavelength um, that they reflect but also, they emit heat um, in the infrared. So if you basically divide those responses out, you can eliminate you know false positives in the infrared and false positives in the visible and get a decent representation of how many plants are in an area, especially on broad ranges, like on a global scale. And NASA did this with the advanced very high resolution radiometer. <laughs> AVHRR. This is before they came up with clever names for their missions Um, and have been doing that for a long time. And later on in 1999, scientists came up with the Enhanced Vegetation Index, which um, was aboard the spacecraft Terra. And you can um, actually go online to M-O-D-I-S, look that up, MODIS, and you can get real data for the Enhanced Vegetation Index. Um, from this scientific payload, so this is—it has a scientific basis, and it it can be useful and stuff. And there's a lot of literature to tell us how to do this. So I thought it'd be a fun optical project, um, and within reason and stuff. So
1: I'm really excited to see this fly, and it's been. So the other computer vision payload is the horizon detection, which TJ, can you talk a little bit about that one?
2: Sure. Uh, so the horizon detection payload is. Uh, actually really cool because it is a kind of validation flight for another project. Um, Another RIT student uh, in his personal time created a program that took a video feed from a how balloon with two cameras and as the name implies detects the horizon from that feed. Uh, So we're going to be replicating that and running that launch again to validate that code and validate changes and improvements he did after the first flight. Basically, when you have uh, two cameras that have an offset image uh, and you know the fixed distance between those two, uh, you can then, uh, through those images, calculate the angles by the differences between those. So if you can detect a single line in two images and you know how those images are offset, you can determine the angle between those, or the angle of the line. Uh, So what that can do is when you're flying the balloon at high altitude, you have a very clear horizon, uh, you can actually get uh, two-dimensional orientation values out of that without using the traditional sensor, which is an inertial measurement union. So this is a different way of getting positional data Uh, which is really interesting and there's a lot of applications for that and as things get more, um, there's a lot of unique applications for that. One of those being uh, when you have a system, an inertial measurement unit that does dead reckoning, uh, when it's monitoring its own changes, uh, you have something called uh, inertial drift and so the values slowly collect small errors and become more and more inaccurate. And so one way to combat that is to provide external information to update the inertial reference. Um, so in the past, uh, star sensors have been a really popular way of updating IMUs, especially in the 50s and 60s. Uh, for example, the Blackbird, SR-71 Blackbird, had a inertial uh, measurement unit for navigating and then had a star tracker to update that. Uh, so for its long uh, reconnaissance missions, it could be track where it was now we have gps so we can pull in a very 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 accurate uh, positional update every couple seconds uh, which is wonderful and great for commercial uses and i don't want to say low safety but non-critical systems Um, but there's huge concerns now of uh, gps jamming and blocking so there's certain circumstances where you need high positional accuracy and you can reasonably expect GPS might be disrupted, especially in military applications. And so if you can use external visual reference as part of your navigation system, you can uh, reduce your reliance on GPS. You would still use GPS because it's there 90% of the time and it's extremely accurate, extremely effective, but these uh, raising the effectiveness of these backup systems is also very important.
3: So you're essentially recalibrating your IMU
2: mid-flight Uh, Yes. Uh, So that's one of the uh, possible use cases for that is if you're using a nine degree of freedom IMU to track your position, then you can use that to update the orientation variables for that. Uh, And you would also use most likely magnetic sensors and other things to update the other variables there. And it just gives you the more data points you have and the more uh, separate locations you can pull in data, the more accurate your total picture is.
3: So this requires two separate cameras, both facing, what, in the same direction, spaced by a known?
2: Yeah, so the critical part is having them uh, offset by a known distance uh, and also have overlapping fields of view uh, so that they're seeing the same, at least part of the same image. Um, And so when you're tracking the horizon, or really any shape, uh, this doesn't have to be a flat horizon line, uh, and you know that part of that image is shared, and you have a fixed distance, you can do the math to actually generate the angle of the object that you're measuring from. Uh, and this is a very popular way uh, for autonomous robots to navigate, where instead of them looking at flat lines like a horizon, they're looking at fixed objects, whether that's the chair, of a, uh, the leg of a chair, or a door frame, or a couch or something like that Um, and with two optical sensors they can track that in 3d space and track where they're they are in 3d space Uh, so it's a a technology that's been kind of uh, the primary use case in home robotics because you don't have a reliable gps signal indoors you don't have the accuracy Um, so it's been tested for several decades in that space and we're bringing that to kind of high altitude balloon flight
0: cool so let's talk about uh have four in the in the hardware side of things um i, I kind of want to talk about the the mechanical structure of things how everything's fitting together first so drew you mentioned we reuse um the the payload bus uh we this what you called it it was a styrofoam cooler at one point what does that become now and on the future flight What shape does this take,
1: and how are things mounted together? Well, it hasn't updated much since then. It's still made of styrofoam. We go to Lowe's or Home Depot, or other stores are available. We go and get wall insulation for, say, a house. Uh, It tends to be green or pink. And then it's solid foam. We will make a, a design that tends to be a puzzle piece. We've only ever made two of these because, again, we, we re-fly them. So we've made the first one where we traced out the shape, the puzzle piece shapes, of the walls and the lid and the bite, the base and we cut them out on a hot wire cutter. So this is a wire that you pass current through, it gets very warm, and then you can slice through the foam. So it makes some less-than-pleasant fumes, but it makes a really nice cut rather than say using a razor blade. So we make these puzzle piece sides of the foam, and then we epoxy them to- together. So it makes essentially a cube. And when we initially designed it, we decided on a internal volume of 20 centimeters by 20 centimeters by 20 centimeters. That 8U internal volume is convenient for CubeSat standards, which use a single U, a single 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter volume as uh, as, a, as a standard. The, but this box, this foam box, essentially just holds everything together. It's not very insulative. It is not watertight, uh, which in New York can be a problem because we have a lot of lakes. But we have an internal frame, which at this point has been made out of ABS, that we then mount all of our sensors, PCBs, and internal payloads onto. Dan, you're also working on
0: a separate high-altitude balloon payload. Uh, or a separate high-altitude balloon from HAB4, but can you speak a little bit about the design considerations for how the form of a HAB is decided? Are you also using styrofoam, and if not, why not?
3: Sure. Let me first um, say that the other HAB that I'm working on that's separate from Specs is uh, my senior design project. So Specs is actually a customer of this project and this High Altitude Balloon Instrumentation Platform, or HABIP, as we are calling it, is eventually going to go to specs once it's reached all of its original goals. So as far as the structure of it, ideally you want something that's, that's big and light. So the FAA has certain requirements about densities, and so we also use foam to kind of work around those FAA requirements. So ours is, rather than kind of like a cooler shape, we're a big cylinder. So we had ours uh, cut with a water jet rather than a, a foam cutter because those fumes are pretty nasty and the water jet's nice, quick, and easy. And so we have this kind of cylindrical shape and inside we have a circular metal grid with kind of like a mesh of holes. And all of the components and everything are attached to this mesh and it's a lot more secure. So this is something we're doing new this year because last year's senior design team uh, used velcro on the inside of the mesh and their balloon came down too hard because their balloon plug actually, well, th- they think that the balloon plug kind of uh, hindered the parachute's ability to perform as needed. And so they came down what was that true?
1: We should say that uh, a balloon plug is essentially a cylinder of metal that one of our members came up with that fits inside the neck of the balloon. and here's another one of your design considerations is that as it was really hard to fill our first hab, this was designed to replace that problem, so it just has a quick disconnect in it, and it's aluminum slug with a quick disconnect that you can plug your helium into, fill, release, and it connects to the parachute.
3: Yeah, so the balloon plug makes things really nice and easy for filling, but once the balloon popped at around 100,000 feet or wherever it was, the balloon plug came down and it pulled some of the parachute down with it slightly deforming the parachute so i think they hit the ground at uh, i don't remember exactly how fast it was but it was enough to break their antenna that was at the base of the hab that was used for communications and all of the internal components that were in there came apart that velcro was not enough to hold them in there So. This year, we're doing things a little bit differently. We've got this metal grid inside of the foam, and all the components are on standoffs inside that grid. It also makes things nice because we have a nice way to easily ground all of the different circuit boards inside of there. And we're also doing a a reaction wheel as well as part of our our payload. So we have a reaction wheel in the center of the high altitude balloon to stabilize the Z axis. So that's going to be a fun experiment. And if you can get stable uh, movement, in up up at 60 to 100,000 feet, you can do some really cool science experiments with that. And I think it would work well with some of the, the the vision payloads that the specs have is doing. So maybe those two can kind of merge in the future and we can get some really cool data and do some cool experiments.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, you mentioned um, easily grounding the electronics on board and all the boards that are in there. Matt, um, you worked on the avionics package for a uh, few HABs in the past, including HAB-4. Can you talk about um, the avionics that are on board? Uh, like what boards, what types of chips are you using? Um, and the design process that went into making them?
4: So what's on HAB-4 right now is a board that I work on um, that's been used in HAB-2, I believe, is HAB-2 and not HAB-3. But it's basically like a flight controller, I would call it, it's meant to. It's that what. It's the board that has the temperature sensor, the pressure sensor, the IMU. Um, it's also got a couple features such as um, a couple power outputs, so you can attach a nichrome wire if you want to cut things, or um, you have, for example, that one of the previous payloads, the solar panels were deployed using one of these extra features that were on these boards, and it can also record data. So this lets us know where it is. Um, one of the things that it was the goal was to be able to power everything and just move everything into one board. Because when we first started doing this, Hab 1 was three separate boards of our design, two MSP430s, and then um, a bunch of batteries. We had a requirement of everything had to be separate, everything powered on its own, and then it ended up being a giant mess of wires. Everything It was really hard to follow what everything was. And we actually, part of that grounding note, missed the connection. Um, and I blew a power regulator on one of our, our power board the day before we launched. So that, that was an interesting interesting uh, challenge to fix. Thankfully, that, that board had um, two of the exact same design on it. So we were able to feed power across from the other one. And it didn't affect anything. Uh, This is why you build a second board for testing, but that was, so when we originally started, yeah, it was, we had a lot of design requirements that had, that needed a lot of boards, but then once we took a step back and looked at it, we're like, well, we can take all the power and simplify that down into one or two different outputs and one input. We can take the two MSP430s or whatever else we're running, simplify that down. We actually use a uh, custom, it's a teensy which is a readily available microcontroller um, that you can buy the actual chip from and put on any board that you design. So that's the brain of the thing. And then from there, the, ha- the HAB board that you guys have now has a bunch of, you could use different communication protocols and such if you want to. Uh, the one thing it lacks is a little bit of power, but that's kind of what's flying now.
0: So why, why did you choose to build your own PCB and like um, connect all the different chips together on your own board versus um, having, I don't know, something that's more commercially available off the shelf?
4: At the time, well, one of the things is, again, we had so many different boards, it made sense to at least try and, if we had found something off the shelf, great, but it, we needed to simplify it. We didn't need... there's a a, there was a ton of wires um, which just leads to issues you don't have a proper wiring setup something breaks. Um, I think I heard that a board was plugged in backwards for a different project and it didn't even, no data was recorded so it just what can you do about that? In this case uh, one of the things, there wasn't, as far as I'm aware when this project started there wasn't anything off the shelf and me being an electrical engineer in school, decided I wanted to learn how to do circuit boards, which I have been doing a little bit beforehand. Um, so it, it was a very fun project to, let's take every, let's take a, a goal that we have and make a board out of it. It's more than like just that too. I mean, you have size constraints as
3: well. So you can take just a commercial off the shelf, Arduino or TNC or something like that, and you can stick it in a breadboard. And then you can go to Spark Fun or Adafruit. You can get all these right breakout boards and put those in the breadboard as well. And in the end, you may have a working circuit that does everything that you want it to do, but it's all on a breadboard with jumper wires all over the place. And you don't exactly want to fly something like that. It's There's too many ways for that to go wrong. And it's big, and it's bulky. So you test your design first that way, and then you can shrink it down onto a PCB where it's more structurally sound, all the components are individually soldered onto the board,
4: and it's it's smaller and lighter as well. Hot glue and bodge wires don't fly well, and the <laughs> the, the board that's in the, the board that's flying now is also the uh, approximately the same size of the, a board that would fit in a CubeSat. That's another thing.
0: Cool. Um, and so, for a high altitude balloon, are there other um, design considerations besides the ones you've already mentioned? Like, are, do you have to worry about temperature and humidity as you? rise in altitude and how do you get around those things
1: oh absolutely so the uh the the atmosphere is variable as you increase in altitude uh we have a large range of temperatures that we need to design for and there's changes in humidity and it also gets very windy at different points in the atmosphere so you get very different motion profiles um In terms of protecting against temperature, in the past we've put in hand warmers with some of the more critical electronics, so putting them with the batteries or with cameras that have uh, failed in the past, so that we can keep those electronics at their operating temperature. Uh, The coldest we experience uh, rising through the atmosphere is about negative 60 degrees Celsius, which is pretty cold. Um, In terms of humidity, because as you rise, as it gets cold, water will start to condense on everything inside the box, essentially. So in for that, there is masking that can be done on the electronics that keeps moisture off of them. So everything but the sensors get covered. Covered in what? Do you just tape them off with
4: Kapton or something?
1: Matt, Matt do you, you want to go into any this. of this?
4: Hold on. There we go, Mike. Um... It's actually a process called conformal coating. We, you, you basically, you can buy the stuff in a spray can, actually. Um, and like Drew said, you mask off a couple spots of the board using Kapton tape, and then you can just coat this board. It's acrylic or a similar material, and it completely seals the board in for moisture. Um, I think it helps a little bit with temperature, but it's not what it's meant for. But basically, you could, you could, if it's properly sealed, you could take a bottle of water, dump it on top, and that board will still work.
0: Awesome. And and software-wise, are are there any other software considerations besides um, what's running on the microcontroller? Like, do you have a do you have a proper flight computer that's like making decisions on flight? And what if not? Why not?
3: Well, I can talk about some of the things that we're doing to mitigate any potential disasters for the senior design board. So first of all, it almost every separate function that we're writing of of the software, we're asking ourselves. What could go wrong with this? And if it does go wrong, how are we going to how are we going to solve this? So, utilize a watchdog timer, which is something that the processor will, I guess, ping or talk to every uh, set amount of time. And if the processor doesn't talk to his watchdog timer, um, it will actually get reset. And so that's kind of a way to avoid any hangup issues that will completely ruin the rest of your mission. We also have a lot of Um, I guess, error checking and handling in the system. So if one of the communication buses is expecting a response but doesn't get a response after a certain amount of time, uh, a time-up period that we've specified, then the bus will get reset. And other than that, there's only so much that you can do in software. So we also have a few hardware options as well for redundancy. So our board has a main power supply and a backup power supply. And the main power supply, or the main battery, I guess I should say, is looked at. So it's a, it's a three-cell LiPo. So there's three, cell, um, three individual cells of this lithium polymer battery stacked on top of each other. And so we look at the voltage across each cell. And if, e- if any one of those cells exceeds a preset threshold, we're using 3.3 volts. If it gets below that, then we know it's starting to get dangerous, and we can automatically switch to the backup battery. We also have redundancy for our inertial measurement units. Because the reaction wheel is one of our main focuses for this mission, testing the performance of that reaction wheel, if we lose our inertial measurement re- unit, we're in and tor- we're in a really sore spot. So we have we have two separate ones. One is offboard and one is onboard. And if one of those fails, we can switch to the other one as well. So by using a combination of software checking itself and hardware redundancies, we can hopefully avoid a lot of potential errors and mishaps.
0: Cool. I think we've already in the middle of it kind of talked about a lot of the problems that can arise or, or challenges that you might face. So are there any other um, horror stories or, or kind of like exemplary moments where something went wrong, you dealt with it and it gave you a better understanding of high altitude balloon flying in general?
4: So I know one of the one of the problems that we had in the past was Hab Two, the board design that I worked on that's flying now for Hab Four, actually had parts of it that didn't work because um, design a couple design issues, some things I didn't see before I sent these boards out. Um, part of the problem was I was running right up against the deadline for these things, and I I missed a part, and so there was a couple like we didn't even, we weren't even able to record data, so planning ahead is always a good thing, making sure you have enough time in your deadlines and such, so.
2: Yeah, that board was particularly fun um, because due to the pin layouts for the sensors versus the pin layouts on the PCB, everything was mirrored 180 degrees. And so Matt, uh, the other one actually saw this problem, but we had sensors uh, upside down with uh, traces going onto the correct spots on the PCB. So our uh, surface mount components were several millimeters uh, suspended above the PCB.
1: There's uh, one more story that would be worth telling. So have one. The very Again, this is just getting our feet wet. It was just a styrofoam box uh, that was painted orange and had our contact information on the side of it, which is something you always include on a high-altitude balloon because you aren't guaranteed that you're going to be the first one to find it. So our first balloon, again, had that issue of not being filled with enough helium. So it was really slow to raise through the atmosphere, and it spent a lot of time in the jet stream, which flows where we are, west to east. And it took this balloon and brought it at nearly 145 miles an hour over to Maine, which for us would be a a 10-hour drive, maybe, uh, to go recollect it. But... It's not so much a matter of the distance, it was up there for so long that the batteries died, and we couldn't track it on the APRS anymore because it wasn't sending out a signal. So once it... we Our last telemetry showed that we could predict it would probably land on the eastern side of Maine, or sorry, the western side of Maine, and looking at that area, it was dotted with water. There were lots of lakes, lots of streams, uh, and although we may have conformally coded some of the components. This thing wasn't gonna survive landing in a lake. At least we wouldn't be able to get it back too easily if it was submerged. Uh, but there was nothing we could do. This to us, essentially, it was lost because we didn't have we, we didn't we couldn't drive out there easily. The semester was still going, so we were all still in class. The we weren't entirely sure where it landed. It could have been within a hundred mile radius probably. Um, but Eventually, three months later, we got a call on our contact information. The then team lead, Augie, uh, who you've heard on the podcast before, got a call from a family who found it when they were out at the park in Maine up a tree. So our parachute brought it down and got snagged in the branches of a tree, where the family then retrieved it, saw our contact information, and very kindly shipped it back to us. Um, we sent them some patches and a thank you letter, um, but we are greatly in their debt for, debt for sending it back because it just barely missed this lake and landed in a tree.
0: Yeah, always put your phone number on the side of these things. I like that story.
4: The uh, when when we lost contact with the balloon, the last APRS ping was over the lake, and I think we were we were all in. A, we have a room where we were watching the flight, and I think fifty fifty it was going to end up in the lake or it was going to land on the other side was the opinion of the entire room.
0: (laughs) So that's really cool. Okay, so um, that's it for our discussion on Hab 4, Specs' upcoming high-altitude balloon launch um, and a little bit of discussion on Dan Mitchell's senior design project. Um, Thanks a lot for talking with us, guys, and good luck to Specs launching the next Hab.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks for listening. You can find show notes to this episode and past episodes at our blog at blog.spexcast.com, which include links to additional resources we used in the making of this episode and some links to follow if you want to read more. If you like this episode, subscribe to future episodes and tell your friends. You can check out our back catalog of content including interviews with subject matter experts and space professionals, as well as our commentary on current events in the space industry. Also, let us know what you think. Leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast service of choice, and reach out to us by sending an email to specscast at gmail.com or on Twitter at ritspecs. We'll be back next week with another discussion on space exploration, science, and technology. Thank you.